If you're new here, we've been walking our way through the book of Mark, and we're at Mark chapter 8, if you want to turn your Bibles there first for this morning. But I want to begin by putting a picture on the screen. And I don't know, does anybody know who this is? His name is Osho. And he was a mystic guru and a spiritual leader in India. And his name was, another name that, we, that I knew him as, was Bhagwan Rajneesh. And uh, he acquired that name actually in childhood. But he, he started out as a professor of philosophy in India. And he figured out that he could actually make a lot more money if he became an enlightened mystical therapist. And he ended up where he got into some trouble with the government in India in, in the mid-70s. And in 1981, he moved to a remote area in north-central Oregon. Close to the town, if you know Oregon at all, it's, it's the Dalles. It's on the Columbia River there. It was just south of there. And Deanna and I actually used to camp around the Dalles uh, real close there. But he bought a 64,000-acre ranch called the Big Muddy Ranch. And people from around the world in the United States began to flock to this commune and to worship and to hear this enlightened man. And his disciples were, for the most part, they were seeking meaning in their lives. And he preached his philosophy, and it was mixed in with plenty of sexual freedom, and it drew thousands of people to that area in those years. And the demographics of this group, we are aware of them, and it was in the newspaper all the time where we lived. Uh, they were mostly young, predominantly white. They were well-educated. Almost all were from middle or upper or middle-upper class uh, backgrounds. And one of the distinctives of this group is that they would wear red hues or red kind of clothing that would, that would signify that they were a part of this group of people. And then one other piece to it is they, they had these wooden um, necklaces out of beads, wood beads, and at the bottom they would put a picture of, of Rajneesh Piram in that and to, as a reminder of who they were following. And this commune that was created actually ended four or five years later with a legal battle where the kind of the second-in-command under him who ran all of the administrative stuff, a young woman, she be, uh, was accused and actually convicted of trying to poison the county government workers by adding stuff to their water and salad bars and everything else. But she tried to because there was such a battle between the county and this group that was growing in that area. But devoted they were, let me tell you. He would drive every day, he would drive through the compound where they would live in one of his 64 Rolls Royces. And people would stand along the side of the road and they were cheering him and just so happy that the Bhagwan had come so close to them that maybe it would rub off on them in some way regular news for us when we lived out there. But you got to catch the picture of this man. Thousands were deeply committed to him to the point where they were willing to abandon their jobs, 
put, throw money toward him, wear distinctive clothing for him. And folks, there was business owners there, there were lawyers there, there were doctors there. These were people from all over the world, the United States, and they gave up everything to be with this man. And when you think of that, you go, what's the first thoughts that come to your mind? And doesn't the word cult really pop up in some form? Let me read the text for today. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he might be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation? The Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. In those first verses that I just read, Jesus is very pointed, speaking plainly, telling them that he is going to die and he's going to be going to the cross. But there's another issue here in this passage today. Understand this, that Jesus had a vision, a plan, a purpose for these men that he was talking to. Let me give you the point really for this morning. Just a reminder for us as we look at Jesus here today. Jesus had a vision for what a disciple was to be that included here three stages of development. Now, if I were to ask you a question, gave you a slip of paper and said, we're going to take a little quiz, and here's the question. What is the purpose of your life? Right now. What is the purpose, whether you're a middle school student, a high school, all the way up to whatever age, what is the purpose of your life? What is meaning supposed to be about for you? Do you know that God has a plan for your life? Folks, this passage is God's plan for us in becoming disciples. Now, I'm going to warn you, it's not a light passage. There's a lot of weight to it. And it can actually even be, I think, hard to hear at times. But here's how I want to do it today. I want to use an illustration that will, and actually, I stole it from my son. He actually used it last Sunday when he preached at his home church. But it's four chairs that we have before us today. You're wondering what they're all about, if I was going to call somebody up. Not going to do that here. But it's an illustration that really gives a snapshot of the process of discipleship, and particularly in this text. 
See, Jesus, his discipling these men, it wasn't haphazard. I think we read the Gospels, but it's not. And matter of fact, we kind of snicker, you think back to my introduction of Osha and his followers, coming to a point where these people abandoned their lives to this man. But do you realize 2,000 years ago, Jesus was looking for followers like that. Now, he knew that it would take some time, but he wanted to bring a group of men and women together where they would start a movement that would change the world. See, he had a vision of what he wanted to accomplish through people. But this, this, this is, folks, this is discipleship through and through. And, and one of the challenges, I think, when, when we use the word discipleship, depending on your past, if you've grown up in a church or if you've uh, grown up in uh, different churches, what does the word disciple even mean to you? I, I recognize that sometimes there's lots of variations in that. But literally it means follower. You could use the word apprentice would be a good term for that. But today we want to dig into this passage because it reveals some things about discipleship. And again, it's kind of weighty, I have to admit that. But here we have chair number one. And if you're following along in the outline there, I said this. People who sit in this chair are beginning to look at Jesus as a viable solution to life's issues. This is before they really know Christ. What's happening with chair one? People are, God's beginning to work in this person. Beginning to take off the blinders off their eyes. They're looking to, all of a sudden they see Jesus as a possible place to go. And there's many in this category. Some are not. There's people that, that are probably in a different category yet. But in this category, they're beginning to go, okay, is Jesus the answer for my life? Now, the dilemma is that this group, chair number one, they haven't figured out what it means to put their faith and to trust in him as Lord and Savior. And that's okay, but because there's an issue here, I think we've got to remember, discipleship starts before salvation, before people are saved. God is beginning to work. The Spirit's beginning to work. And that's part of the discipleship process. But they view that that God might be a possible solution to it. But chair two represents something else. And it represents those, it could have been that you're grown up in the church or or whatever, but there's this place where you, you, you come to a place where you go, I know I need Jesus I'm going to put my faith in him. The Holy Spirit has worked and revealed his love for you and why he died on the cross for you. And all of a sudden, you, you gave your life to him. But, I, but catch this. Around stage two, chair two, there's some issues that I think we struggle with, depending on your background, depending on where you've grown up in church. See, I think this, and I look back, I grew up in an evangelical free church. But as I look back, I go, a lot of the teaching that they were telling me of what it meant to be a disciple, some of it had nothing to do with Jesus. That was part of the problem, I think, for me. And what happens in churches is that there's kind of a a churchy answer to chair two. 
And in your notes there on the screen there, you understand, for some Christians, the goal is to be a nice Christian. You know what? Here's, here's what he wants from us. I'm going to be a nice, moral Christian. I'm going to stay away from evil. My goal is to have nice Christian kids. I'm going to attend a nice Christian church. And then I'm going to season all that, you know, with the American dream that we're supposed to buy into to have a big house and two cars and lots of toys. And then I'm going to, as I get a little older, I'm going to have a nice season it with a nice retirement. And then I'm going to coast for about 25 years till I die. Is that what Jesus wanted for us, for our lives? Say, this text reveals so much more. And it's where it's so challenging because he's taken these men and he's included a group of people, many that don't know him, and he's pushing and he's pulling them towards something very different. And in this exchange, it reveals something that's very hard. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. If anyone would come after me, he's assuming that there's gonna, there are people looking at him and going, I think I want to follow this guy named Jesus. But the goal for Jesus, the goal for us, is not to be a nice Christian with a nice life. See, he's speaking to this crowd, and you realize for the most part, the crowd represented people who wanted something from Jesus. They wanted a miracle. They wanted a good meal. They wanted some good teaching, some really good teaching. But Jesus comes along in this passage, and he puts some conditions on what it means to be a disciple of himself. And this morning... This chapter 2, 3, 4 represent those conditions that Jesus talks about this morning. But in chair 2 here, I understand this isn't about being a nice moral Christian. For your notes, I said it this way. Following Jesus begins by giving up our self-ruling nature. See, Jesus knows that deep down, the sin that we really struggle with not the surface sins, the, the deeper sins, is that we love our autonomy. We like to control our, our world. And we refuse to be underneath anything or anyone, and we keep reserving the right to make the final decisions in my life. See, that's the reality of sin. Now, and I think where some people within the church, you look at chair two and they go, I'm not sure that I really want to give up control to him. But I would also say this, I think many here even today, you recognize that battle. You read Romans 7 where you go, I do that which I hate to do. You know deep down there's a struggle with the sin with us of really giving it over to Christ. You know the power of the flesh and what goes with that. But I think the challenge in chair two here is that we can get stuck at times believing really some faulty pathways out of that. 
here's where I, I think where we go. It's, do we just discipline ourselves out of it? And we look at this self-ruling nature, denying the self. And we think it's about just about me, of self-denial. That's the pathway. So, you know, we had donuts in between. And we think of it this way. You know, I'm going to go to the coffee table, and I'm just going to take one donut instead of two. Or you go home, and maybe you got a dessert here at lunchtime today, and you go, you know what, I'm going to deny myself today, and I'm just going to do one dessert instead of two or three. I'm going to deny myself, you know what, that television program there, I know I'm not supposed to watch, but I'm going to deny myself and not watch that. Or, Or maybe even for Lent, I'll give something up. But folks, that is not denying the self. That's That's not what Jesus is talking about here. See, we offer, though, just to be disciplined. And here's the tension. If you just focus, for example, on just the spiritual disciplines as the answer to this, what can happen is you can learn all kinds of Bible facts and not really care about a relationship with Jesus. Prayer becomes a discipline of getting something from God, but no heart-to-heart with the Father and with the Son. See, that's the challenge. What are we really doing in terms of denying oneself? But recognize here, in this is a battle as to where we give our love. Where we give our love. And if you want to write down an assignment for this, this week, can I suggest one? Do this. Sit down with a piece of paper and a pen or pencil and say this very short prayer. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where I am giving my love? Where I'm directing my love? Is it money? Is it security? Is it stuff? Where is my love going toward? See, denying self is not about spending less time on earthly things or making a little room for Jesus. It's not just, Jesus, we're going to add you to what my world, my busy world already. See, he's, he's not asking us to just slip, us in, slip him in when it's convenient. He wants to be the one that you and I love most. That second chair is where I need to subordinate myself to him and that relationship. He needs to become central in my life. And intuitively, I think many Christians know that that is the starting point. But what's the third chair there? Now, in the pastoral world, if I were to ask that question, I think sometimes in development of people, here's what some of the pastors would say. What they need to do to move to chair three is they need to begin to serve people, serve the body of Christ. That will develop them to the next stage. But I have to remind you, Jesus doesn't do that here. See, it isn't really what Jesus had in mind in discipleship here. Actually serving, do you realize, is still in chair two. Serving is in chair two. 
See, if we're making Jesus, making the Father, the central object of our love, serving will be a response to love, to his love. And it will not be a sense of duty. And one doesn't serve Jesus then on a checklist. Oh, I got to serve this year, so I got to do this and do this. It won't be out of a duty, it's out of love. Matter of fact, when we deny the self, serving isn't what I get out of it at all. It isn't about the satisfaction of something that I get, of my significance, patting myself on the back because I serve today. When it is out of love, serving can be a great delight. And that's why this so fits with this idea of a marriage is when I love my wife, serving isn't a burden, it's a joy. And in chair two, that's where Jesus wants us to be in serving him. And it becomes a way of life, and it's not difficult. And what's chair three about? Let me put up the verse 34 again on the screen. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, and look at this next, and take up their cross. Now again, there's a churchy answer to what this means. Let me give it to you for the notes here. For some Christians, taking up their cross is learning to tolerate earthly circumstances. Here's how we think. My neighbor, they are so hard to live with. They must be my cross to bear. Maybe even a harder one. My kids, they're not doing so well with Christ. That's my cross to bear. Or maybe I got chronic back pain. It's my cross to bear. Or you know what? My wife burnt my breakfast this morning. That's my cross to bear. She didn't, by the way. But when we look at our circumstances in this world, and this is not what Jesus is talking about here. For your notes, I said it this way. Jesus calls his disciples to be willing to suffer to follow him, follow Christ. See that phrase, if he wants me to, him to follow, if I should follow him, he, take up your cross. See, this isn't about suffering physically or ailments or cancer or chronic pain or a job that you don't like. This phrase had incredible meaning in their culture, and I don't think we really understand it from their perspective. The people knew what he was talking about. Historians estimate that over 30,000 people in that region were killed and crucified by the Roman government during the life of Christ. Thus, every person would have understood when Jesus said those words to take up your cross, that it was equating with suffering. See, families would walk along the roads, and they'd come across, just think of this as a family, you're out for a walk along the roads, and there would be a cross or a tree with something nailed on, and there would be a naked man dead on it. Or times they left decapitated people out so people would see 
Folks, this was suffering. For them, it was real suffering because if they wanted to not give in to Rome, it might cost them their life. There's a cost to this. See, a, a disciple of Jesus takes his place behind the Lord and walks where he walks, even in hard places, knowing that people might reject you. There might be alienation, losing fame, losing the admiration of people. But it's all for the sake of Jesus. See, the model here is taking up our cross. But there's one piece here that Jesus, we see in in his modeling for us, is that when he took up his cross, when he became a martyr, he never stopped loving people. Jesus loved sinners all the way to the cross when he was carrying that cross on that road and hanging on that cross. Remember, he's hanging there. Remember the words that he spoke, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you ever want to look at a text that's very difficult, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter is really much about suffering. 1 Peter 2 talks about Jesus hanging on the cross. And he could have, because he was God, he could have destroyed all of those people that were in front of him. But he goes, Father, you've got to forgive them. And how did he do that? He entrusted himself to his Father to give him the power to love the sinners that were in front of him. See, that's a part of taking up our cross It reveals something profound in that suffering. Do we understand it in the United States? Mm, Probably not so much. Deanna and I have been to Poland numerous times, and and on a number of occasions we'd hear about a, a young woman or a young man come and put their faith in Christ, and where the parents have nothing to do with them because of that. Matter of fact, I know a young woman who had came to Christ, married another follower of Christ. They get married, and her parents would not come to a wedding. That's more of the suffering of what will happen. Even give up your family because of it. My hunch, as we look out at our country right now, that we're on the cusp of really sitting in that chair of suffering more and more. I I really believe that. And, And I think this, parents, you are at a crossroads where you are going to need to begin to teach your children about suffering and what's coming. But where we get, we think this is evil and bad. And Jesus goes, no, it's part of the process of making disciples. It's the radical call to follow Christ. But here's what we need to remember, is that suffering actually is a privilege. It's an honor. It yields fruit into eternity. See, it can be earthly loss, but Jesus says, guys, And he's going after his disciples here. Trust me on this. He's getting them ready when he was going to be gone. I'm here for you. I'm sending one that's going to be your helper. And suffering 
will change you, will strengthen you. And it's going to be used for my glory. It's going to be used for the kingdom of God being built. I want to show you a verse from Philippians 3, Paul writing. He caught it. Look, look at how it goes. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Isn't that pointed toward us? But we have a fourth chair here today. And I think chairs, you got to go through two and three to get to four. But again, he's talking to the crowd and the disciples. And let me put 34 on the screen again. Look what it says. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up my cross, and follow me. Now, I don't know if you realize this. Verse 34 is a pivotal point in the book of Mark from 34 through chapter 13. Some have titled this the way of the cross. It's a turn where Jesus is going to begin to go to Jerusalem, to Gethsemane's garden, to the judgment, of hall, the judgment hall of Pilate, to become a whipping, to hang on that whipping post, and to the bloody cross. And he is intensely preparing his disciples here. But the order in this text today is very important because it could have been written like this. If you want to follow me, deny yourself and take up your cross. But it's not written that way in the original languages. There's three parts to it here. And there's something deeper here. And follow me. And functionally what he's saying is, Get in the water with me or get out. But getting out, he ends up throwing a warning at them. Look at verse 35. For whosoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes to his Father's glory with holy angels. See, he's speaking there to the uselessness of gaining the world. And he's saying, gaining the world and following me are not they don't connect. They're mutually exclusive. They're mutually exclusive. But I need to stop and point out a piece here that I believe is also true. And I've watched this in, in numerous people. And I would say it this way. People start out in chair one. They go to two and they start to go to three and four. 
But this isn't a static thing where you get there and stay there. I've watched people get to chair four and begin to regress. And they go back to chair two and they begin to even the Christianese thing of, I'm just going to be a nice Christian. That's now my goal in life. That's a, that's a warning. And that warning is mixed in there. Or be, be careful. If you think that the world, gaining the world is where it's at, Jesus said, be careful. What does it mean, though, to chair four? What does it mean to follow me? And folks, this is intensely personal, intensely relational here. And I don't even think the church really has a, a churchy answer that we can respond in this sense. For your notes, I said it this way, one's greatest calling is being with Jesus loving like Jesus, investing in people intentionally like Jesus, bearing fruit because we're connected to Jesus. And and understand the way it's written in the Greek, it's not static, it's building, 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 it's ongoing. This is about a lifestyle of having Jesus as the person we love most being filled with this love that we're loving people, forgiving people when they wrong us, turning the other cheek, because that's what Jesus does, and we're called to follow him. And he gives us the power and the ability to do it. It demands that we don't hold grudges. It demands that we become other-centered. It demands that we're investing in the lives of people beyond our children and our marriage and our families. Now, I've got to add one more piece here. I'm going to be careful uh, that I don't put a burden on, because here's the reality. He's not demanding perfection at all. The following me is not that we walk perfectly. Hebrews 12, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But it says this, throw off the weight and the sin that so easily entangles and fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. The perfecter of your faith. Meaning that we allow as we gaze, as we move to him and follow him, he becomes the one that continually works in our lives. He gives us the ability to love well. We fix our eyes on him relationally. See, Jesus, though, is calling for a consistency in our lives. Continuous. See, it's easy, I think, at times we follow Jesus on Sunday, and then Monday we take a different path. Or at times I think people, they look to Jesus and they go, Jesus, I'm in trouble, would you help me? But once we've worked through that situation, we turn and we no longer care about following him. See, that is not what Jesus is looking for. He's calling for his people to make a relational commitment. Folks, this is like a marriage. It really is. We're the bride, he's the groom. We follow him, we surrender to him. And he loves us profoundly, and he changes us. Jesus is calling his people to make a relational commitment and allow him to steer that relationship. 
where he takes you to places and circumstances where he uses you to build the kingdom of God? See, he wants us to be with him. And he begins to reveal the very purpose and the purposes of our lives. My son, again, preached on this last Sunday. And after, he used a different text, and it was a little bit different, but so he's at home, they're eating together at home, and starts a conversation. He said, it's the three older girls, it was the conversation with them, but he said, what, do you th- what did you think about the chairs? I think actually he might have invited one to come up and sit for an illustration. And one, one of the twins, who was 12, she looked at Dad and she said this, Dad, I think I'm in chair two. And, and he started asking, well, why? And she responded something like this. She said this, you know what? I go to school and I see all these kids doing all these bad things. And I don't do them. And it was a bit stunning. And, and if you think about that, here was a 12-year-old already moving to a place where she says, I'm, as long as I'm a good Christian, that's where I'm at. That's okay. I don't break the rules. I don't swear. I don't do those other things that the other kids in school are doing. Now, it, it afforded Andy and Jen to have an opportunity to actually go, now, Brooke, can, can I tell you what more it's about for you as a 12-year-old? And he began to tell him what it means for a 12-year-old to maybe go to chair three and chair four. Great opportunity that he had. He, he seized the moment. Because this would apply in some degree to even a 12-year-old. But here's... I'm over. I need to quit. Let me put up a question for you this morning to end here. Which chair are you in? Maybe you're in actually chair one here this morning and you haven't figured out God is revealing some things to you and you're starting to, okay, what does this really mean? And you're coming to a place where you realize maybe Jesus is the answer and I would encourage you to explore it more. Come and talk, email me, call one of the elders and explore what it means to turn and surrender. You know, repentance is actually just turning and walking toward him in a new direction and trusting that he died for you. And if you've never done that, man, I would encourage you, don't wait. Don't wait. But if you're in chair two and and the goal of your life is just to be a, quote, nice Christian, is that what you really want? Is that what Jesus wants for us? See, what chair are you in now? And are you moving this direction, not static, just sitting in one spot? Are you moving and saying, Jesus, would you change me? So this week, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Let him take you to a place where you are willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus. To a place where 
you are so in love with him that you're just following him around and you're sitting in chair four and you're making a difference for the kingdom of God because God has changed you. Make it your goal to invite God to work in you that he has to pull you, be the one that pulls you from chair to chair. Which chair are you in today? Let's stand and pray.